James chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first seven verses in a few minutes. As we saw last week in our study of James' open letter, which is in fact a sermon and intensely practical, that he defined religion that God accepts as pure and faultless as marked by three features. A controlled tongue, keeping a tight rein on one's tongue, caring for those in need, that is, looking after orphans and widows in their distress, and personal holiness, keeping oneself unpolluted from the world. These are not the only features that are to be found in the Christian faith, but they must be present. I quoted Calvin last week. He does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. These three features must be present. I want to consider three, th- three things by way of review. First of all, why religion? Why does he use the word religion and not the word uh, spiritual? Religion or religious, as he uses it in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, have a general reference to externals, to outward forms of religion. And while James is not focusing on forms of religion, he is speaking in terms of the external. He is emphasizing the need for an external working out of the gospel. We live in a time in which religion is seen as evil, and spirituality is the preferred path. And so I think there is this natural sort of negative reaction to this passage, uh, I I would say, in our culture today. But he chooses religion because he is, in fact, focusing on how the gospel is to be worked out in the world. Then we also talked about the personal approach to understanding Scripture. That when we study the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we need to understand a fundamental principle, and that is our approach should be personal rather than theoretical or even theological. And by this I mean that rather than seeing what is written as a series of instructions, uh, whether you know information or correction, we should understand them as a reflection or as a description of Jesus a fleshing out of the gospel accounts of how he lived his life. After all, we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and the instructions given by the apostles in the epistles are to help us do precisely that. And so they are describing the actions of Jesus, and this is how we are supposed to live our lives. So what we read last week and what we studied, the three features of religion that God accepts, we see in Jesus. We see him as one who controlled his tongue, one who cared for those in need, and one who kept himself by, from being polluted by the world. And as I said last Sunday, I think rather than asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? We should ask, what did Jesus do? And look at the scripture for the answer and follow in his footsteps. This past week, I had the occasion to listen through the epistles from Romans all the way through uh, Philemon. And I was struck by the fact that these three features keep coming up over and over again. I mean, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they, are learned, they should learn to be quiet. And he, he uh, writes against those who are busybodies, those who have no control over their tongue, the need for caring, uh, caring for those in need, and, and so on. This is how Jesus lived his life. This is how we are supposed to live our lives. And then the third thing, by way of review... In these three features, we, in fact, find an outline for the rest of the book. Uh, In chapter 2, he will deal with caring for others. In chapter 3, the first part, how to control or the need for controlling your tongue. And 
uh, the last part of chapter 3, then chapter 4, and the first part of chapter 5 on living a holy life. One more issue before we go on to our passage today. Why would it be that people would not allow the gospel to be reflected in their external lives? That is, why does James need to write this? Uh, Why is it that people need to be admonished? You need to live out your Christian faith in the real world. I'll suggest several reasons. First of all, there is the issue of self-deception, which comes up several times in chapter 1. James is just very careful. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't think, oh, I am a child of God. I have this internalized spirituality. I don't need to live it out in the real world. James, I think, is very careful. Uh, you know, don't listen to the word only. Do what it says. Don't deceive yourselves. I think James was keenly aware that we are prone to self-deception, particularly in the Christian faith. Okay? That we think, well, I have Christ in my heart. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm a child of God. I'm on my way to heaven. And so it doesn't really matter how I live out my life. James would say this is just sheer self-deception. But the people to whom he is writing, why is it that they might not live these things out in their lives? Remember, he is writing to people who used to be part of his congregation. They have had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. And it very well may be that where they are right now, they are going through persecution. We will see as we go through the rest of the book of James, he mentions different points, even in our passage today, of being taken to court, of being abused by those who are in positions of power. And stop and think a minute. If you are a Christian in a culture, in a nation that persecutes Christians... What does that mean in your life? What, what is the impact? What does that, is that have any relevance to how you live your life? Usually when I think of Christians being persecuted in the 20th century, in the 21st centuries, but in the 20th century, particularly the former Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, I think of people meeting secretly, you know, and, uh, you know, not wanting to be caught by the KGB or by the government, you know, and being sent off to the gulag. And so they have to meet secretly. And that, in fact, I think is a part of what we see in the Soviet church, uh, baptizing out in the middle of nowhere so that no one would see them, you know, to do things secretively. And there's no doubt that that is true. We have Christians today who live in Muslim countries. And they are not allowed to express the fact that they are Christians to the people around them. So, yeah, I I understand the secret meeting part, but what about your everyday living? If these three things mark your life as someone who controls his or her tongue, someone who cares for those in need, someone who pursues personal holiness, not being polluted by the world, isn't that going to show, aren't you going to be marked by your behavior by people who see you like, well, wait a minute. You know, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you meet secretly with other Christians, but there's something about your life that is different. You must be one of those Christians. Now, if the commands and instructions in Scripture are intended to point us in the direction of following Jesus, and if on some level we are able by God's grace to follow in the footsteps of Jesus... Wouldn't that like be a spotlight on us saying, this person is a Christian? And I think there is a strong temptation, or there would be a strong temptation to say, listen, 
if I do the things that James says, if I control my tongue, if I take care of those in need, if, if I keep myself thinking differently than the world does, everyone's going to know I'm a Christian. So I can't do that. I'm going to have to blend in. And then we'll say, well, wait a minute. Anyway, I have the Lord Jesus in my heart, so that's what matters. So it doesn't matter how I live my life. And James is saying, don't kid yourselves. Don't be deceived. But what about us? We don't face persecution as such. Uh, I do think that we face pressure, and it is the pressure to blend in. We live in this culture. We're supposed to be a melting pot. Everyone is supposed to melt. Uh, We are assured that you can practice any religion that you want. Whatever your religion is, that's fine, as long as you keep it out of the real world, as long as you keep it out of the public square. And the result is, or one of the results is, as Guinness has said, that Christianity has become, for many people, privately engaging, socially irrelevant. That is, it's completely internalized. It has nothing to do with the real world. And James would say, this is unacceptable. If James could be here today, if he could write us another letter, I think he would write almost exactly the same things. That we who are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus should control our tongues in a culture in which we are encouraged to do quite the opposite. That we should care for those in need in a culture which has made institutional provisions sort of removing away from us the need for personal involvement in helping those in need. We should keep ourselves from being polluted by a system that is contrary to God's law. In a culture which seeks to achieve human goals without any reference to God, his laws, his values, or his judgment. In a culture that that constantly bombards our senses, our thoughts, our imaginations, and seeks to erode our values and our standards. The temptation to keep our religion private, I think, is intense. And I think in, in a very strange way, if we privatize our faith, there's a certain intensity that takes place. And I've had a theory that I've mentioned to some of you over the years that if our faith is not connected with the real world, then our worship becomes a bit more intense and frenetic because we've, we haven't had God in our lives for five or six days. And so Sunday when we get together, we have God and we've got to make up for those five or six days and it just gets sort of crazy. James is telling us that our faith is to be involved in every aspect of everyday living and not something that is privatized. Today we come to chapter 2, and it may not be exactly what we are expecting. Uh, As I told you, the rest of the book is based on these three features, but he doesn't start with controlling your tongue. He, in fact, starts with caring for those in need. Something else that happens is that the word religion doesn't appear anymore. That what James does is he now makes the switch to the word faith. Uh, The NIV has as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The King James has, I think, quite um, what's more correct. uh, Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. A believer is one who has faith. You know, we might have been happier if James had started using the word faith earlier instead of the religion, because that that sort of threw everything off. Uh, 
He's not making a switch, however. Okay? I think what he is doing is making the connection. This is what is religion that God accepts as pure. Okay? This is what God wants us to do. This is our faith. The two should be combined. And we should not see faith as something that is contrary uh, to our actions. Unless we fail to make the connection, I think, that James makes it for us. Let's look at the first four verses, and then uh, later on we'll look at verses 5, 6, and 7. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Supposing a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James gives a simple illustration as he begins to unpack what it means to practice religion that is pure and faultless, particularly in terms of caring for those in need. Two strangers come into a place where a church is meeting. and In the first century, they didn't have church buildings. They met in people's homes. Both are strangers, and this is apparent because they don't know where to sit. Had they been a regular part of the congregation, they would just sort of help themselves. But they don't know where to sit. They need someone to help them, and and a member comes and helps them find a place where they can sit. The first stranger is someone who is dressed in fine clothes and has a gold ring. The second stranger is poor and in shabby clothes. The wealthy person is told, or the person who is dressed in fine clothes, is told, here's a good seat for you. The person in shabby clothes is told, stand over here, you can sit over uh, at the feet of where I am sitting. What is the difference between the two people? There are probably many differences, but the one that causes the two different responses, external appearances. And remember, James is very concerned with the external world. We can't simply internalize our faith and then not have it deal with the real world. The seating of the two reflects favoritism or partiality. Now, I think we must be careful here because I do not believe that James is sort of pushing forward a radical egalitarianism, that we should treat everyone equally. We are told, for example, a number of places that we are to show respect, we are to show honor to those to whom respect and honor is due. For example... I do not believe it would be partiality if the two strangers coming in, that one was an elderly person and one was a young person, to say to the elderly person, here, we've got a seat for you, and to say to the young person, just stand over there, you can you know, sit on the floor somewhere. Leviticus tells us, rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God, I am the Lord. James' James example is very specific. This is someone who looks rich versus someone who looks poor. He's not saying we should treat everyone equally all the time in every place. Another example, and this I will give in the form of a question. I will let you decide. Would it be partiality if the President of the United States were to walk in here and we were to give him a place of honor? Peter, after all, tells us in his first epistle, uh, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Paul told the Romans, people who lived in Rome, the seat of government, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. 
If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Some might debate this point, particularly because we live in a supposedly egalitarian society. Everyone is equal. And we have a president that was elected by some of the people. Not everyone voted for him. Uh, Maybe we should just let him be treated like everyone else. But I think we should agree that there is an inherent dignity that is to be afforded to someone who is in a position of authority, just as it is to be given to someone who is advanced in years, someone who is older. And so I would suggest to you that James, if we could interview him and say, James, okay, is this a rule across the board, treat everyone the same? He would say, no, not at all. You know, the young people, they can stand. They've got, you know, they're young. They can do it. Someone who's older, they might need a place to sit. Someone who is in a position of authority is to be showed respect. We are not to be disrespectful to them. It is something else altogether to be swayed by the mere external appearance of someone as they come in. That someone seems to have money and the other one seems to not have money. And... You know, appearances can be very deceiving. Okay, but here James is ju- or is saying that they are making a judgment based on appearance. It is not merely favoritism or partiality; it is, in fact, sin. Not all discrimination is wrong, but to discriminate or to judge merely based on outward appearance, I think, is is sin, and it is wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, in the first four verses, actually it's at the very beginning in verse number one, James gives us an answer that's not quite as obvious. We sort of have to dig for it. And then in verses five, six, and seven, he gives us two very good reasons why we should not do this. The first answer is found in one word. It is in the word glorious. Uh, The King James, I think, uses the word glory. If we assume for a moment that James has reasons for the words he uses, that he's just not sort of throwing words around to sound religious, then we must assume that his use of the word glory here, which on the face of it is really out of place. It it doesn't really seem to fit with what's being said. He has a reason for it. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, after uh, conferring with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, says to God, he makes a request, show me your glory. And God responds, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Glory in Scripture represents the personal presence of God in all his goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. He is God in the flesh. He is the revelation of God's glory. John writes at the beginning of his Uh, gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And after Jesus performed his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, uh, we read, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And and the point is, what what exactly is the point here? When we make a judgment, when we discriminate based on merely outward appearances, 
We have made a, a judgment, and we have put our set of judgments, our glory, if you wish, before the glory of God, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember in the Lord's Prayer that we are told, or at the end we pray, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Either we will follow Christ's values and how he values things, or we will, all the time or from time to time, allow ourselves to be led by a different set of standards, the standards of the world. We will, have, in fact, become polluted by the world. Because rather than thinking the way that Jesus does and being the presence and the glory of Christ in the world, we will think the way the world does. And the world thinks that someone who has nice clothes and a gold ring, they should be given a preferred place over someone who is obviously poverty-stricken. And we should remember what Paul tells us, that the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. When we depart from what God's definition of glory is, the Lord Jesus Christ and the decisions he made, then we set ourselves up as judges, we pass judgment, and we do so based on wrong thinking. We've made a double mistake. We have misunderstood our status as though it were our position to sit in judgment on others. And secondly, we've trusted our own judgment, as if by ourselves we could make a true and accurate judgment. Yet, when I was in school, uh, I just have never done very well with true or false tests. You know, the true or false uh, Give me any other kind of test and I do well. The true or false, I, I just don't. And my teachers would always say to me, well, whatever the first thing that comes to your mind is, that's the right answer. And you know what? For me, it's not. It isn't. Okay? I would say in the same way that when we come in contact with people, the first judgment that comes to our minds may not be the right one. And to make judgments based on external appearances, we've made the wrong decision because we have not chosen to follow in the steps of Jesus. We instead have chosen the way of the world. And we have discriminated. We should understand that Christ must reign supreme. He himself is the glory. We are to accept others as he accepted them. We are to act toward others as he did. It may seem a lot to get out of one word, glory or glorious, but I think it's there. Um, one scholar has argued that the reason Jesus was crucified and put to death was because of the people he ate with. It wasn't for the miracles, it wasn't for the teaching, it wasn't for any theological aberration, it was because he broke social convention. Jesus, as a religious teacher, a teacher, ate with sinners and, fair, and publicans. He hung out with the wrong people. We, as God's people, if we are guilty of discriminating based on externals alone, then we are not following in his steps. We've gone down a different path. Well, again, as I said, that might seem a lot to get out of just one word, 
But in verses 5 through 7, James, I think, sort of makes it clearer to us why we should not discriminate merely based on outward appearance. Verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? James says, listen, there are good theological reasons, there are good practical reasons why you shouldn't make such a discrimination when someone comes into your congregation. The theological reason is that God has chosen the poor things of this world, the weak things of this world, to make up his kingdom. That's probably not how we would do it. If we were given the commission to set up a kingdom, we wouldn't want poor people. We wouldn't want weak people. We'd want those who have money, those who have power, those who have influence. James, I think, understands something that we need to understand. That every conversion, when a person comes to faith in Christ, has a public history. A time when a person made a decision. They made a commitment. They said, I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. But that's the public history. There is a secret history, which the Bible tells us has its origin in God's choice. That God is the one who reached out and saved us. He is the one who chose us, and now we respond in faith. But the choices that God has made oftentimes run contrary to the way the world would do things. As I said, if you were to make up, if you were given the choice, choose the people who are to make up your kingdom, we probably wouldn't uh, choose or pick the same people that God does. God chose the poor, those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he has promised. They are poor, he makes them rich. There are three ways in which he does this. First of all, He gives them faith. Faith is a gift from God. We love because he first loved us. And so even though one may be poor in the eyes of the world, this is not an obstacle. It is not a hindrance. God gives. He is the giving God. He gives and makes them rich. Not in worldly terms, in the eyes of the world, but in faith and in love. He also makes them heirs of his kingdom. After all, again, in the words of the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom. How does one become an heir? How does one inherit? Well, either one is born to it or one is adopted to it. We were born the children of sin. God gives us new life, new birth. He adopts us. We become his children, and then we become heirs of his kingdom. And more than that, we are given his name. As James says here, are they are not the ones who slander the noble name, uh, the one you, to whom you belong. Amos wrote of a time in which the Gentiles would bear the name of God. When you think about baptism, and it very well may be that James is thinking of baptism, that one does not become a Christian, per se, when one is baptized, but one takes on the name of Christ. We are baptized in the name of Christ. And the rich people are those who slander that name. This leads to the practical aspect. Uh, 
The rich things of this world point to that which is oppressive. James mentions exploitation, manipulation of the legal system, and defamation. They defame the name of Christ. It is, after all, those who have money who are in a position to exploit those who do not. It is those who have money who can manipulate the legal system for their ends. I happen to believe that we have one of the best legal systems in the world today. But would you not agree that if you have money, you get different justice than if you don't? Having said that, I'd rather be in court in this country than anywhere else in the world. Okay, But it's still the rich who, it seems, are able to manipulate the system and who are in a position of power that they can defame others, it seems, with impunity. And James says, why in the world? Why would you do this? Why would, when two people come in to worship with you, why would you go contrary to the way of Christ and, and show preference to the rich one? And why would you choose the rich one when you know what the rich do? They exploit, they manipulate, they defame. Why? It's because we've become polluted by the world. We've begun to think, or we've continued to think as the world does. The Lord willing, next week we will look, at least by way of introduction, at the twin issues of poverty and wealth and what the Bible says about them. I don't think that James is anti-wealth. We will see that as we go through. He does say some harsh thing about rich, uh, some harsh things about rich people in the rest of his epistle. But what does the Bible say about being wealthy? Do you, is it wrong to be rich? Uh, is he is God anti-rich? Uh, I think that's important for us to settle. But let's. Let's conclude our sermon today. The double fault with discrimination is that we, base, we judge based on appearances and we judge contrary to God's judgment. It's a double fault. We've only looked at the external and we've, we're thinking differently than God does. If we are to care for those in need, how can we make a judgment based on appearances? If we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, that is, by taking on the world's standards, we must not discriminate based on appearances. But having said all that, I don't think that James, I don't think these verses are uh, Christians should not discriminate. I don't think that's the main point. I think his point is we need to think the way that Jesus did. We need to look at people the way that Jesus did and not the way that the world does. That is the calling of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a culture in which we feel we have the right to make judgments, that we have the wisdom to make judgments. We have the freedom to do so. And so we've been polluted by the world. And we've made discriminating judgments in, in places and at times when we should not. We've judged by external appearances. We have not followed the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not walked in his footsteps. And I think we need to go back and, and study the Gospels to see what Jesus did, how he dealt with those in need. 
We pray for your spirit to guide us and give us wisdom as we think on these things. That he would help correct our judgment. That we would not look to our own wisdom, but look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus, who though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. That we might inherit the riches of your kingdom, of your grace. What a great and unspeakable gift this is. May we be filled with gratitude. May we not forget him as we live our day, our lives day by day. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We do pray again for the Noble family in the coming days that they might in a mighty way have a sense of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.